Would you hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the, the fish, the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your love and mercy to us. We thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would focus us this morning on this. And uh, we pray that it would be for Your glory. We need it. We need Your feeding. And so by Your Spirit, feed us this morning. That we may hear it. That we may live in it. That we may walk in it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, just for a second. Oh, sorry. Um, last week, we began to uh, a series on marriage, and we began to kind of look at the aspect of what marriage is about. We looked at the architect and builder of marriage, and we, we learned as we got into the Scripture that that architect and builder is God. So how we got there is we began to look at, so what is the state of marriage like in the world? What is it like? And we saw that in the world, it, it's not very much like the biblical idea of marriage. And we also pointed out that lots of times in the church, it has moved away from a biblical idea of marriage, and it's adopt the world's culture. And many churches do that today. And that's a frightening prospect because we, we looked at this verse from Psalm 11.3 that says if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so the, what you would say is, well, Patrick, are you saying that the idea of marriage is a biblical foundation? And I would say, yes, absolutely. It was created in the beginning. It was set up from the very beginning of creation to, to do many things that we looked at. And so we looked at marriage. We unpacked it a little bit as we looked at that biblical foundation. And we saw that it's, you know, this biblical foundation is a foundation for our world and life view. Uh, God's very word calls us to develop a foundation for all of life. And all of life is to be lived and governed and directed by Jesus Christ because he is our king. Because He is our Lord. Because He is our Savior. He is the one that sets up kingdom values and gospel values. And so we as His people, most of all, should be hearing those and listening to those and realizing that our, in our hearts we rebel against God. Continually we're trying to do our own thing. And when it comes to marriage, it's the same way. We want to kind of develop our own ideas, our, our own ways. And so we have to be careful. Um, our king has called us to understand a biblical faith, an entire worldview. And so as we look at this, the way the church influences the world, honestly, is by being the church. And so he calls us to live out these values before an unbelieving and a watching world that they would see us and go, wow, that's incredible. That's beautiful. So concerning marriage, we went back to Genesis where we saw that marriage is God's creation. God made man. He made woman out of man. Isha out of Ish. 
Then God brought them together as a man and a wife. And next what He did is He laid before us and before them, before all men, this idea of a biblical blueprint for marriage. Genesis 2.24. If you'll look at that passage again, Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the idea in a biblical marriage is that you leave your mother and father. Why why is this? Because it shows us that it is the most important relationship that God has established on this planet. That's, That's the idea. It's an important relationship. It is the one relationship that is above every other relationship except your relationship with the Lord Jesus himself. Second, he said to cleave. And that's just this picture of hold fast, hold tight to your spouse, stick together like glue. Marriage then is to be looked at as a permanent relationship. And it is the most permanent relationship established on this earth. The third thing is, is to become one flesh. Marriage is the most intimate, the most complete, the most total of all human relationships. And so what we would say is this, a marriage... Uh, as a couple come together, they are to be so intimately related that they function as one. We, we use that illustration of the scissors where it, it, a separate, they're, they're, they don't work, it doesn't work, but if you put them together, they work in harmony, they work as one. And so let me ask you a question, okay? As we kind of look at where we're going to today. Why is the, the relationship to be this way? Why would God lay out this blueprint in this way that we would be one? Um, when you, let's just put it this way. When you seek the scriptures on this, uh, and you see the truth, what, it's amazing if you really look at it and think about it and contemplate it. It'll captivate your heart and mind. And what's interesting is, is what we'll see today is, is that it not only has this focus on, on, on the marriage relationship, but it has this kind of profound effect as it ripples out to every relationship that we have, but specifically our relationship with God. Now, why is that? Because the, the, the center of it, the center of it is the planner. The center of it is the blueprint designer. The center of it is the creator. In other words, the reason why this oneness in relationship is so important is because of God himself. Because of the Lord. And so let's unpack this. And to unpack this, we're going to look at three questions today. Three important questions from our text. Number one, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does that mean? Number two, what is it like to be in biblical oneness? What does that look like? How do, how do we wrestle through that? And number three, how does that apply to marriage? So we're going to look at th- three questions. Now, two of them are going to be very theological centered. And it's on purpose because we have to begin with God. You know, theology is the study of God. And so we have to be focused on Him because He's the designer. He's the blueprint maker. He's the creator of it. And so I want all you young people to listen up. I want all you older people to listen up because we have to get this straight. We have to understand, what is the Lord doing here? What is He doing in this relationship? 
So let's look at our first question as we consider, you know, this idea of biblical oneness in, in marriage reflects the glory of God. That's kind of our focal point. Biblical oneness in marriage reflects the glory of God. And so our first point is, is what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does that mean? You see, in the beginning, we know from the Scripture was God. There was God, and He was complete in and of Himself. And for some reason, which the Scripture doesn't really tell us, He chose to create. He doesn't reveal to us why, but He chose to create. And the reality is, is that our God, our, our powerful, almighty God did not need anything because He was perfect within Himself. However, He chose to make, to design, to create. So He made the earth. And, and you can almost look at the earth as a stage in which He, he presents a, a story that's unfolding because that's exactly what's going on. He's, he's, he's unfolding a story before our eyes. You, you've heard the term history you know, if you break that down, it's his story, you see? So it's unfolding before him and before us and before the heavenly beings. It, it's, it's unfolding. And in this story, at the very beginning, he created man and he created woman. And we see from the Scriptures that there is a lot more here than meets the eye. There are animals, there's creatures, including heavenly beings. But here's the thing. Man, he was different. You have all this beautiful creation. Can you imagine him speaking and, and the mountains forming? You can imagine him speaking and the, the Hawaiian Islands you know, forming. And um, uh, you could see him creating these incredible creatures. Perhaps you've been to a, uh, one of my favorite things. that When uh, Chris and I were first married, we went to some aquarium. And I saw this crazy fish swimming at me and it was just like this straight line and I'm like man that's a little fish it turned and it was this humongous fish and it was beautiful in color and this is what I thought if I didn't have this aquarium I would never know that fish existed it shows me the glory you think God thinks things are he creates things beautiful he does it's incredible but in all that beauty and all that stuff he created man, and man is different. Look again at verse 26 in chapter 1. That God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In our image. One commentator I studied noted that although God knew all... Um, knew all that human beings would become and do, including our fall into sin, the first thing the Bible says about us is that we are made in the image of God in a way that is not true of any other creature. We are intrinsically and irrevocably made in His image and His likeness. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Dr. Richard Pratt, who is one of my professors at RTS, says the following. He says, there has been much stress concerning the important dimensions of all that that means. Many have stressed that all people are like God and that we are personal, relational, creative, and moral creatures. 
the Genesis context furthermore coincides with the ancient historical context that to be in the image of God was to be associated with the idea of being a royal son of God. Ancient kings were thought to be the sons of the gods, imbued with the honor of ensuring that the will of heaven should be enforced on earth. He continues, in Genesis, a radical extension of this outlook takes place. The term image of God is applied to every human being. Male and female, he created them. All people assume the honor and the value once attributed only to royalty. Let me say that again. All people assume the honor and value once attributed only to royalty. All people have been set in the world to display the glory of the true and living God, the great King of the universe, by establishing His will on earth. Just think of it. Just think of it. He created us to be uh, magnificent and great and glorious. And, And we turned away from it. He created us to be in His image. And everyone on this planet, no matter what race, no matter what poverty level, it's just true from Scripture. And as believers in Christ Jesus, we have to hold this. Now for our purposes, um, to simplify the matter, and to show that all these insights are true and valuable, let's think of it in this way. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And this does not mean that we are made in His physical image. For God is a spirit and Jesus became a man. But God is a person. What does that mean? Does He not think? Does God not communicate? Does God not feel? Does God not make choices? Have you ever thought about it just for a moment? That that's the reason I do that. It's because I am made in the image of my heavenly Father. Wow! It's incredible. If you are a person in the image of God, you think, you communicate, you feel, you choose, you rule. Whatever God is as a person is what it means to be a human being as a person. Would you flip over to Psalm 8 for me? You can keep your place. It's easy to find. You don't have to keep your place. But you could keep your finger there. Flip over to Psalm 8. Let's look at this psalm just for a few minutes. We're going to read through a little bit of this psalm. I want you to think about this idea of being a royal son or daughter of God. Look at what the psalmist says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of? And the Son of Man that you care for Him. And yet, you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned Him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now look back at verse 5 with me. Look at what it says there. It says, you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings. Now, if you have the NAS version with you today, perhaps you notice the translation is different. How does it translate it? It translates it this way. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God. Interesting translation. Why would it translate it that way and the ESV translate it another way? Why would this happen? Well, because the word here in Hebrew is actually Elohim, which is God. Now, don't mistrust your ESV version because uh, words have meaning in context. And in some context, heavenly beings or angels uh, for this word has legitimacy. The Greek Septuagint actually translates it that way and uses angels, messenger, which is quoted from the book of Hebrews. But here is the thing that is highlighted by most commentators, okay? Here's the thing. This text points significantly back to Genesis chapter 1, 26. So that every human being in his essential essence is indeed made in the image and the likeness of God. Do you see the nuance of the meaning here? Now that you realize that in Psalm 8, that word there is Elohim. Do you see the nuance there? This is how Dr. Hatch used to put it in our class on this this topic. He would say this, we are little gods. He would talk about parenting and he would say, you know, you've got that little God on your hand. (laughs) You know, now don't take me wrong. We're not divine, and we would not hearken back to the new age of the 80s and sit around with those who would shout out and say that we're God, we're God, we're God, we're not. That's not what we're talking about here. What we are talking about is we are fashioned in the image of God. We have to understand that. Do you know how much ruthlessness and evil and wickedness has been done on this planet? Because people don't recognize this fact. How races are put down. How races have been enslaved. How people have been murdered. Because they are not like we are. You have to understand this. Every human being on this planet is created in the image of God. That's why I just look at some of the discussions today and I just shake my head and I think, if we would only go back to the Bible, would we even be talking about the crazy things that we're talking about today? Do you see how far we've rebelled? How we've just turned our back on this? It just, I'm sorry, infuriates me. We are fashioned in the image of God. Now here's the thing. Sure, we are fallen and marred from His glorious image. 
But we are still in His image and we are worth redeeming. How do I know that? Because He redeemed us. What is man that you are mindful of him? We see this here in the psalm and throughout the Bible. God is mindful of man. He has sent His redemption plan. So look at it this way. Get this in your mind and let it revolutionize your worldview. Just for a moment. Think of this. A wife is not a slave. But she is a person in the image of God. An infant is not just a kid, a plaything, but a person in the image of God. Side note, if you were to look at that little child being formed in the womb of a mother, is that child not being formed in the image of God? The question we ask is wrong. When does life begin? Seriously? When does the image of God begin? And we would murder it? Oh, this truth should just stand in our hearts and be in our minds always, even as we're angry at the person who cut us off at the street. Why? Because even that teen that's driving you crazy as you're looking at him as a deer in the headlights is made in the image of God. Your boss, that person that is out to get you, they're all made in the image of God. And why does Jesus say, love your enemies? Well, one of the reasons is, is they bear the image of God. We see here what it is like to be made in the image of God. To be persons set in the world to display the glory of God, the great King of the universe. And this is incredible. It should just force us to have a, a, a world and life view focus that we see that this is true. And that we can love ourselves. That we can love other individuals differently because we believe. That we are all made in the image of God. As we have seen, what this means for man and woman to be made in the image of God needs to go a little deeper. We need to take this another step deeper. So, so let's look at the second question. What is it like to be in biblical oneness? In other words, the God in whose image that we are made, we need to understand that, that we're made in His image. And so how then does that translate to us being in biblical oneness? So what does that mean? I know I'm making a jump there, but what does that mean? Genesis 1.26 again. Look back at the text. That God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is incredible. Because why? Because this is the first time in the Scriptures, and it's in the very first chapter, where the, in, the, in the work of creation, where the one God uses the plural form, let us. Now I know there's a lot of discussion out there in theological land. There has been for a long time on what the us means and what the our means. There are many various options and opinions as to the meaning. However, I agree with the early church fathers in considering this plural form that it indicates a reality about the one God. 
Though this verse cannot be used in a simplistic fashion as proof of the Trinity, it does indeed, from that vantage point, help us to understand the significance of mankind as God's own image bearer in a richer and more personal way. What do I mean by that? How many persons are in the Godhead? How many, children? Three. There are three persons in the Godhead. And those three persons are distinct persons. The Bible makes this very clear. The Westminster Confession teaches on this as well. It says that there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then the Confession adds this. And it's a very scripturally sound statement. They add this. Same in substance. Equal in power and glory. Same in substance. Equal and power and glory. Does this mean that the Westminster divines believe that there are three gods? By no means. There is no plurality of gods. Do you know the great Shema? Do you know the great Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. I love that Hebrew. It's the only Hebrew I know. And you got to get that little guttural in there. Echad, like that. Okay? And what that Shema is saying that there is one God. So the argument here in the context is that the God whom we serve is the only living and true God. He only is God and He is one. The nature of that oneness is important though. For while the Hebrew word in this text does bear meaning of only one, it can also be used to speak of a unity that is actually a union or composite of several factors. In other words, in an absolute way, in an absolute way, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are so intimate related that they are one with one another. They are so intimate related that they are one God. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. Dr. Kelly in my seminary class used to put it this way. If there is no thee, there is no thou. In other words, for there to be a thou, there has to be a thee. So on a, on a philosophical level, it shows that there has to be a Trinity. That the one God points to the idea of a trinity. Three persons in absolute unity. And so there is. Three persons. So intimate related that they are one God. Great, Patrick. So what does all this theology mean that you have swirling now in my head? What does all this have to do with marriage? Hopefully you see it. Or at least you should begin to see it. If you're looking at this and you're thinking about this, how might I apply this to marriage? What does this mean? Well, God who said it is not good for man to be what? Alone. That same God made man in His image. Two persons. A man and a woman. But these two persons, if they are going to be in a marriage image, that marriage relationship, they are bound to be, they are called to be, in His image, one flesh. Look at Genesis 
they shall be one flesh. The word here in Genesis 2.24 that is used for one is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy 6.4. One God. Do you see the rationale? The rationale is that the planner himself, it is in the very nature and essence of God, in the planner himself, he planned for us to be one in marriage. That's the design. That's the key. And it has such ramifications that it's unbelievable. The great and ultimate model of marriage then is God Himself. Do you think that may be why it's so important? Behind the plan is the plan. God says, I want you to be like me. So why should you be one with your spouse? Because it'll be better for you. Sure it will. Because it'll be better for your children. Oh, sure it will. But the ultimate reason to be one in marriage is because God is one. That's how he designed. Now, we have been actually working through these texts, and we've been looking at these verses, and as we have, we're answering the third question that we're coming to. You should see that third question already be answering. But in closing, let's look at the book of John to apply this even deeper. Not only to marriage, but to all here. To married and unmarried, if we consider the third question. How does that apply to marriage? Turn to John 17, if you will. John 17, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. John 17, the upper room discourse. And what Jesus is doing here is He's praying. And He's praying for the church. This is commonly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Notice in the section that Jesus is praying for His disciples. Look at verse 11. We'll start there and then we'll jump down a little bit. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He is praying that these men, these disciples, through whom His new covenant church will be built, will be one even as He and the Father are one. But keep looking. Look down at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, people. That they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now we all know that Jesus is not praying about the same oneness here as in Genesis 2.24, but let me ask you a simple question. As we see how all this works together, think about this simple question. Do you think oneness will ever happen in the church if it doesn't happen in marriage? No. Do you see why it's a foundational issue? As our marriages are, or as our marriage relationships are one, it better makes the body of Christ one. Do you see that? So what we're saying here is young people, young people, listen to me. Make this your foundation 
For you're the church. You're the church. And what about single people here? What about single people? How does this apply to you? Well, this is an aspect to where you help in supporting those marriages around you with this truth. Older people could do the same. You know, singleness is... Uh, I, was, uh, I remember hearing one of the, the most incredible sermons I heard on this topic was by John Piper. He was preaching a marriage sermon very much like ours, and he did one on singleness, and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard in my life. Because I have known some single people to be single all of their lives who made such an impact in me. And this is the one thing that he said in that sermon that really just gripped my heart. He said... You know, as you're single, as you're in, in, involved in the body of Christ, and as you're discipling, you will disciple spiritual children, as only Piper can say. Spiritual children. You see, even though we're talking about marriage here, it has impact into everyone's life because of the oneness factor here. So support this idea. Support strong and oneness marriages. What about those of you who are here who have been hurt and wounded in marriage? Trust in the providence and grace of our Lord and cast yourself upon Him. As I said last week, the Lord will restore the years that the locust have eaten. His steadfast love endures forever. You take what you know now, you take these scriptures and what they teach you, and you say, from this moment on, I will live in your way, Lord. Forgive my past. Forgive all that stuff. And help me to live today in the truth. I didn't know it then. Maybe I knew it a little, but I didn't embrace it. Lord, forgive me. You move on. And you embrace it now. You be the child of God whom He has called you to be now. And trust in His steadfast love and His forgiveness. It's all over the Scriptures. Even in my prayer this morning, in my prayer time in the Psalms, I was reading, and um, I think it's David, I can't remember which Psalm it is right now, but I think it's David that was praying, and he says, Lord, you know, forgive the sins of my youth. And so he's looking back at his past, and he says, and my rebellion, which seems to be in the present tense. And he says, for your steadfast love and your mercy endure forever. Do you see what he's looking at? It's like when we come and we're confessing our sin together like we do in our service. Dwell on your sin, but then look to the Lord Jesus Christ and fall into His arms and trust Him. And so where you have drifted away from this truth, hold on fast. And finally, husbands and wives submit to this blueprint and design. Why? Look back at John 17, 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. Again, do you think that biblical oneness is going to happen in the church if it doesn't happen in marriage first? 
when will we learn that the church is not a building? It's the people of God. You know, one thing that should shock the world and make them know that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that He's touched us, that He has His hands upon us, is the revolutionary idea that husband and wife can be one as He is one. How do you wrestle with that? How do you trust that? The only way that can happen, the only way, is by the work and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have heard it today from God's Word. Embrace it by the power of His Spirit. Trust Him. Trust His Word. Give yourself to Him. But know this, only Jesus and His grace can bring this to happen. We will fail tomorrow. We might even fail on the drive home. Right? But it is the Lord Jesus Christ who works in and through us. Trust in His mercy and grace. He will make us one.